Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. In our current series, our teacher, Lyric Fesco, is going through the Ten Commandments and what they mean to us today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Okay, so uh, I'm going to tell you a story, and it's a story uh, about me being foolhardy in my younger days. I was a single man. I'd finished school. I had a job, but I wasn't exactly making tons of money. I had enough to pay the rent and, and other bills and, and had a bit left over for groceries. So let's just say I was squeaking by, okay? Now I had a car. It was a decent car. Uh, I had a car payment, but it was uh, maybe about a year away from being uh, paid for, owning it outright. So I like to think that I mostly own the car. Uh, now, anyone with any sense would tell you the best course of action in my case in that situation was to just hang on to the car finish paying for it in about a year, and then I wouldn't have a car payment, and I'd have reliable transportation uh, to go with it. Uh, That would be the sensible thing to do, right? Uh, Was that the thing I did? No, it was not. You know me too well. No, that was not. What did I do? I decided the best thing for me to do would be to buy a Jeep. (laughs) You know the kind, the the Jeep Wrangler, uh, Ragtop, the classic Jeep. And let me tell you something. I love Jeeps. I still do. I still love Jeeps. Uh, When I was a teenager, my brother had a Jeep. And let me tell you how many friends he had, especially friends of the female variety. He was... All the girls wanted to ride in the Jeep, and that was, that was very important back then. Aside from that, it was all kinds of fun. They were just fun to drive and all kinds of cool. In fact, I, I would own a Jeep today, and I told Tracy my next car is going to be a Jeep. I still don't have it. I don't know why. But uh, maybe that makes little sense now to have a, a Jeep, but uh, it, it made no sense back then to, to have this, uh, this Jeep. But I really wanted a Jeep, really wanted it. So I was looking at Jeeps, and I said, what would it take for me to buy the least expensive entry-level Jeep there is? That's what I would like. I could trade my car in for a new base, base model Jeep. And so, so that's what I set out to do, and that's what I did. I got the bare-bones entry-level Jeep. A bare bones Jeep has nothing. It's a motor, a body, and wheels. That's, that's it. And, and I loved it. I was a happy guy for about a week. And I said, you know, it'd be something, it'd be nice to have something more than just an AM radio in this, in this car. I, I, could, I bet I could get into a stereo for, for pretty cheap. So I bought a stereo for it, and it worked. It was nice to have a stereo in the Jeep, but the, the speakers that came with that Jeep weren't exactly designed to handle a loud stereo, so, so they were designed for an AM radio and, and nothing more. So I thought it only made sense to buy new speakers for the thing. You know, after all, when the top is down, you've got to have good speakers, otherwise you can't hear the music, and, and everyone else can't hear your music <laughs> when you're driving around in the, in the Jeep, too. So something else about Jeeps, you can't leave anything in them. You can't leave anything in them. You basically can't lock them because if someone wants to get into your Jeep, they just have to unzip it. <laughs> At least that's the way it was back then. You can't lock it up unless you buy a lockbox for the back. So you, can, you can get a lockbox for the back that, makes the, that turns that back area into a, a, a secured store. So, so it was only a couple hundred dollars. So I thought, well, let's buy the, the lockbox for the, backs, the back. Then you'd also need it for the Jeep. The wheels, the wheels that came with an entry-level Jeep, they're, they're just nothing fancy at all, and, and they're very plain, and, and a Jeep just doesn't look like a Jeep unless it has beefy wheels, you know? So, so maybe I could swing a new set of wheels for this thing and, and, and to go with it. You see this is where this is going, right? 
I kept going with this thing. Well, if it rains and you, what, you don't have the top on, well, then you need a bimini top. So you got to get one of those and keep that back in the, in the lockbox. And, and then, you know what else a Jeep needs? Extra lights. You know, you want to put fog lights on it for all the fog in Nashville that we have to deal with. So you want to put those, those on, there, on a step. You know, you have to try. It's difficult for passengers to get up into a Jeep. So you got to have one of those, you know, those really cool pipes on the side that you can step up into the Jeep and just kept going. It just kept going. And I near, it nearly bankrupted me. Now, here's the kicker. At the time, I was driving driving back and forth to Atlanta quite a bit because the, the rest of my family was still there in Atlanta. That was about 300 miles. Do you know what it sounds like in, <laughs> inside a Jeep on the freeway uh, for about 300 miles? It's like, it's like uh, living in a jet engine, inside of the, of the jet engine. And uh, so I, it, it took me about a year to realize that maybe a Jeep is not the best uh, time for me to have one right now. This is, this is not it. So maybe in 20 to 25 years, I could have a Jeep, I said. So I sold it. And, uh, but here's the point. It was one thought, one seemingly innocuous thought. Boy, what would my life look like if I had a Jeep? Probably better, I thought. And that one thought snowballed. And, and just continued to snowball, one foolish decision led to about a dozen more foolish decisions. So we're wrapping up our study on the Ten Commandments. And uh, this week, most people think of this final commandment as the most innocuous one. Not many of us think about or worry about how much we're coveting, you know, I, I'd guess. In fact, some, some years ago, I was trying to memorize the commandments in order. I knew there were two tablets of the law. Okay, and the first tablet was primarily focused on, on our, uh, our relationship with God, and the second tablet was primarily focused with our relationship with our, our neighbor and, and man. And I knew that honor your father and mother was right in the middle. So then what, th- what did it go after that? Well, in my mind, they, they went in order of severity, right? So after, <laughs> after, uh, after you know, uh, honor your father and mother, then it's don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't lie, and then, of course, don't, uh, don't covet. And I thought, well, that's, that's a pretty easy way. They're, they're, the least serious ends up at the end, okay? Uh, th- that's the order of severities. But here's the thing about the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is the gateway commandment, okay? The 10th commandment is the gateway commandment. It's the commandment that snowballs into breaking all the other commandments. What do I mean by that? Let's take a look at it. This is in uh, Exodus 20, uh, verse 17. The commandment reads like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. So what do I mean by covet? What does it mean to covet something? Is it just wanting something? For instance, I say, oh, I don't know, I'd like a Jeep, okay? Is it wrong for me to want a Jeep? Where does the, the, the line exist between just garden variety wanting something and when does it tip over into coveting. Who wants to try and answer that one for me? Where is the line between wanting something and coveting something? Covet the idol that becomes the sin because you put it before God? Is coveting the idol that becomes sin because you're putting something before God? Is that? The concept like the Jeep that uh-huh. doesn't come from the Lord, it comes from put it, I only have. Good, I like that answer. Someone else? When does, when, is, it, is, it, is it wrong to just want something? Is it wrong for me to want a Jeep? No. Okay. When does it become coveting? Maybe when it becomes your ultimate? When it becomes an ultimate. Okay. Changing your actions. Say again? When it starts changing your actions. When it starts changing your actions. I think that... The, primary focus. When it becomes a primary focus, that's a good one. The, the, the word is more... When it talks about coveting in the Bible, 
the word is more closely related to lusting after something or desiring after something, okay? And so what, what, let's, let's do this. Let's illustrate what, what coveting looks like, okay? And uh, let me take us over to a story in the Bible, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And let me show you the effects of what coveting does and what coveting looks like. This is a story of King David and Bathsheba. Let's look at this account real quick. Turn your Bibles over with me, or you can look up here to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 1 and make our way through this, this portion of the story. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So here's the first thing that you'll notice. It plainly tells us this is the time of year that kings go out to battle, yet David chooses to remain in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why he didn't uh, go out to battle. He could have had legitimate reasons. We just don't know. But I have a hunch based on how the story goes from here that they weren't productive reasons, okay? Let's keep going. This is verse two. It happened late one afternoon when uh, David rose from his couch, he was being productive, I'm sure, and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. Now let's stop right here for a second. We've made it far enough into the story to see that David has engaged in covetous behavior. It says that he inquired about the woman, but as we read a little bit further, he, this wasn't a professional inquiry. He was not looking for a good hairdresser or an accountant, okay? He sees her, he covets her, he covets something of his neighbor, and we continue with verse three and following. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and, she, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent uh, and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, so if you're keeping score here, if you're keeping up with the snowballing that's going on here, we, we see that he broke the 10th commandment by coveting the wife of his neighbor. And what did that lead to? It led to the breaking of the 8th commandment, which is don't steal. He stole someone's wife. He took something that was not his to take. And then we're told he lay with her, which means that he now fractured the 7th commandment. He committed adultery. And in the process, he gets her pregnant. Okay, so far that's tallying up to three. Let's keep going with the story. Pick it up, verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is Bathsheba's husband who he just stole. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, came to him, David asked uh, how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him uh, a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Uh, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel uh, and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Okay, so what's going on here? David has a plan. He's trying to cover up this mess that he's gotten himself into. Remember that. Remember how I just phrased it. He's trying to cover up this mess that he's gotten himself into. He tells this messenger, his messenger, to go get Uriah, who's in the midst of battle. Bring him to me. 
And so he does. And then, then David engages in a little chit-chat with him, you know? So how are things going in battle? Good? Okay. Is everybody good? That's great. Well, guess what, Uriah? I've got a little surprise for you. Uh, why don't you go home and enjoy a night with your wife? Have a little rest. And I know you've been fighting hard. You could use a day off. Enjoy the night, Uriah. But guess what? He didn't do it. He didn't do it. He basically says, I can't do that while everyone else is in the middle of fighting. I'm not going to do that. Okay. You see what, what David is trying to do here? If Uriah spends the night with his wife, whom I'm sure he missed, uh, if they, they have children in here, if they join in Congress, <laughs> it, it's easy to, it's easy uh, to then say Bathsheba got, uh, you know, uh, pregnant <laughs> by way of Uriah. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's natural, right? This is no big deal. Uh, it's a clever little scheme, no? Uh, but there's a word for what David is doing here. He's engaging in something we call deception. It's also known as a lie. lie. So now David has broken commandments in order 10, 8, 7, and 9. And it all began with, hey, who's that lady over there? Okay, <laughs> a harmless little coveting, right? Let's keep going with the story. David tries again to get Uriah to stay the night uh, with his wife, but he doesn't do it. He refuses to go to the house, and now David is mad, so he, he does this, skipping down to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he was, or where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of them servants of David among the people fell. Uriah, the Hittite, also died. Well, good job, David. You did it. You covered up your sin. Okay? Well, mostly. Uh, no one will know. Everyone will just think that Uriah died in battle and that presumably Bathsheba is pregnant with Uriah's baby since there's no one around who can refute that, I guess. But what did David do? He deliberately had Uriah put on the front lines where the fighting is the fierce, fiercest and had the men draw back. Why did he put him there? So he would die. And die he did. We have a term for that, and it's called premeditated murder, is what David has done here. Add commandment 6 to go along with 7, 8, 9, and 10 that he already broke. Okay? We can keep going with this if you'd like. All right. Actions like this certainly are dishonoring to, to David's family. Yes, his mother and father. So add commandment five to the list too. Well, at least he didn't break the fourth commandment, right? He didn't dishonor the Sabbath, did he? Yes, he did. Remember that what we said just a few weeks ago when we were studying the, uh, the fourth commandment, uh, the keeping of the, about keeping the, the Sabbath holy. Keeping the Sabbath wasn't just about not working on the Sabbath, Okay. But, but honoring the work that someone else did on your behalf. That's what keeping the Sabbath is about. Not just you not working on the Sabbath, but honoring the work that someone else did on your behalf, that person being uh, God or Christ. Honoring the work and acknowledging the work that God has done on your behalf. David didn't honor God's work here. Uh, just like Adam and Eve, is, he's very busily trying to cover himself up here. Okay, he's trying to cover up his sin. David is trying to preserve his own righteousness rather than rely solely on the righteousness that's provided for him. He's dishonoring the work that was done on his behalf. He dishonored the Sabbath. Add commandment four to the list too. And again, I can keep going. I can keep going with this. We already discussed about uh, idolatry here, but you see where I'm going. I can show you how David's act of breaking the 10th commandment and his act of coveting led him to breaking all the commandments. The breaking of the one commandment led to breaking of all the commandments, okay? See what the 10th commandment can do? 
it, it's, it's pretty unique in this regard. Violation of the 10th commandment is the gateway to violating the rest of the law because this is a commandment of, and this is what we were getting at earlier, so we're trying to get at earlier, what is it to, what's the difference between coveting and just wanting something? But the violation of the 10th commandment is the gateway to violating the rest of the law because it is a commandment of motives. It's a commandment of motives. It's fairly easy to draw a line between this commandment and any other nine commandments because sin almost inevitably starts with a thought of some kind, a motive. See that? Okay, any questions or, or, or observations on that much so far? We, we're trying to distinguish between just wanting something and, and, and coveting, and we're drawing it down to motives and how motives lead you to do name any of the other commandments and breaking any of those. Any thoughts or questions or comments? Observations, anything? Okay. Okay, let's keep going. All right. Uh, now, as we've done with all the other commandments, let's be reminded of how this was applied in its original context, and, and uh, we'll look at it in a modern context. So it's an original context. Remember, God delivered Israel uh, out of the bondage of slavery from Egypt and, and gave them the promised land, okay? And with each Israelite household, they were to receive a portion of the land. So this commandment, in its original context, reminded the Israelites that everything they possessed was a result of God's kindness to them. All right? Therefore, they shouldn't covet what was not theirs because it was all a result of God's, God's providence. It was the portion that God had allotted to them, and they, and they should be content with that. And again, we can say the same thing in a modern context, too. All right? Uh, we, we, we weren't delivered from the slavery of Egypt, but we were delivered from the slavery of sin. We've been given life in the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. We have so much to be grateful for, right? Uh, if only on the spiritual level. But, but on the material level, too, most of us, I dare say, live well above the pot of poverty line here, okay? And, and we have a tendency to look at our neighbors and say, hey, I'd like to keep up with them. I, I'd like a house like that, too. Usually being content with what we have and, and the portion that God has allotted for us is not a primary reaction for us. That's just not how we operate, at least not for me, you know? So let's go back to our first question now. Where does the line exist between just wanting something and coveting something? So we want to elaborate that a little bit further between wanting and coveting. And if we're stringing motives, what motives come up that make you want something to an unhealthy point to the point that you start coveting? You guys are a quiet bunch this morning. Any thoughts? No? Are we getting it? You understand it? Um, remember, coveting is a sin that's rooted in motive. So, so sure, you can want something. But the question you have to ask yourself is why do you want the something? Why do you want something? Do you want something for a good reason, or is it a selfish reason? Why did I want a Jeep? Why did I want a Jeep? You know, I'm not sure, but it probably wasn't for a good reason, okay? At the very least, I couldn't, I couldn't afford it, and for that reason alone, I shouldn't have bought it, okay? If God was totally good with me getting a Jeep at that time, He probably would have given me the resource to buy it, at the very least, right? And, and I didn't have that. I wasn't content with the portion that He providentially allotted for me, and, and, and that gave root to coveting a Jeep, coveting what, what I saw someone else had and, 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 how, and what their life looked like with, with that Jeep. And so I coveted it. I wanted it that more. My motive became something unhealthy. And so, and so there was no good reason to get, get that Jeep. So if you find yourself wanting something, if you find yourself wanting something, and just ask yourself this, why do I want this? Why do I want it? Why do I want it? Is it for a selfish motive or is it for some other uh, uh, some other motives. Now, once in a while, I know, I know, so you probably want to treat yourself, right? And say, hey, I feel like I deserve a, you know, fill in the blank. And I'm not trying to, trying to be a killjoy here, but even that, even something as, as innocuous as treating yourself to something small, there should be a good reason rooted in it. Maybe you need rest. 
Maybe you need a vacation. Maybe you need rest so that you can, you know, being a, a, a non-grumpy father or a, uh, or, uh, or a good friend to someone else. There's always, there's always should be a good reason that you're tied to, to wanting to do something or wanting something, okay? Yeah. yeah I was just going to say, I just have trouble with the selfish aspect because even like a good meal. Yeah. Right? It's not doing anyone else any good, you eating a good meal, but you're enjoying it. It is inherently selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, you, could, you could just, you know. So maybe you shouldn't have it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think there is something good. There's something life-giving. There's something that, that even, you know, treating yourself to a good meal once in a while, that can be life-giving and therefore, you know, produce good results outside of your own, your own little sphere. So even that you can root in, in... And I'm not trying to say, you know, reverse engineer this. Let's try and tie a good reason for me going out and buying a Jeep now. Because I still really want a Jeep, Tracy. So... <laughs> What's the good reason to have that? You know, so I'm not saying reverse engineer it, but if you frame your thoughts that way, if you frame your thoughts and ask yourself everything, then you, then, then you really can start trying to tie those, those good, solid biblical reasons for doing just about anything. And, and, you, and you're reframing your mind. You're reframing your mind in that aspect. This just isn't just a meal. This is something that can be life-giving, okay? That can produce life outside of what I'm doing here in my own little, my own little siloed world, okay? So even a meal can turn into something like that when you start reframing your mind that way. Yeah, George. I mean, part of, because sometimes, I mean, if the Lord is giving you something, your opportunity to give thanks and enjoy that and share with family, whatever. So you're not saying don't do anything. But mm-hmm. the question is, well, one, do you spend all your time preoccupied with it? Right. Does it affect your attitude towards people, relationship with mm-hmm. God? Does it damage your stewardship of what God's providentially giving you mm-hmm. how you spend your money and you cycle into debt or can't do things you need to do um, you hurt somebody else those kind of things seem to be really key to what you're describing is a reframing of the mind you know a reframing a rethinking of how you're 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 purchasing things of how you're uh, getting things acquiring things for yourself and, and asking yourself what harm or what good or what what benefit is this of, of having it? And, and that's something that we can do all the time for everything, for anything, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're looking for. Okay, we talked about this verse a couple weeks back, and it reinforces the idea that sin is born out of motive, and it snowballs from there to all kinds of other things. This is James uh, 1, 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, when his sin is, fully, uh, is fully grown, it brings forth death. James is telling us that sin begins with a thought. It begins with a single thought, most often a covetous thought. And, and then James tells us that leads ultimately to death, to death. That's what sin is. So, so while sometimes we like to think of the last commandment as the least serious, it's arguably the most important commandment because it, it's the seed of all sin. Okay, see that? See that? Any other thoughts or final comments on that before we... Well, I was still on it. it seems like there's a, there's a line where the second you start coveting something is the second you think, I will be happier That's right. with this material thing mm-hmm. that God has not given me. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, again, this is what we were talking about just a moment ago. This, this is what idolatry ultimately is. Whenever you're... Idolatry, we covered this some weeks ago, but idolatry can be rooted in, in, in something good. 
okay, foundationally can be something good, but when it becomes the ultimate, when it becomes the thing that your happiness is conditioned upon rather than the, 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 the rock of Christ or, or the, the salvation of God, when, when you're looking to something else, that good thing suddenly becomes the ultimate and now you've entered into the territory of, of idolatry. Okay, uh, and, and it's, that's sort of the, the, the final check. If, if what I'm doing, if, if my happiness is now dependent upon this thing or whatever it is, if I'm not going to be happy without that, that, that's a gut check right there. That's a time when you start to think, well, maybe this, this isn't a healthy thing that I want. Maybe this is covetous behavior. Maybe this is something that, that I can live without. Okay? Yeah. Not only that might have addressed it, but also circumstances, not just objects, but it could be, you know, position. Could be. Oh, I wish I had that relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. Had this family member. I mean, things that can also. Be- I think that's why the, the the commandment is so comprehensive. When you know, when he he said he didn't just say coveting is just wanting a thing over there. He he talked about the neighbor's donkey, his his ox, his wife, his his, his anything of the neighbor. And again, if this was rude in the idea that hey, you get your property. You get your property when you get to the promised land, and that's yours. That's your allotment. So it's anything that's been allotted to you. That's why he goes on to say, hey, it's, it's basically, it's all those things. This is what you've been, you've been uh, providentially given, and so be satisfied with it. Be happy with it. Don't just, don't just staring over on what else, what else can I acquire here, okay? Any other thoughts? Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I came home after being with my parents or being at my dad and mom's house, and my house was trashed. I mean, the boys just didn't do anything. It's two boys and my husband, and they're just pizza cartons all over the floor. I mean, it was like, and they have told me that, Mom, when you die, we want to put on your tombstone. The house was never clean. <laughs> you know, and it's, does that take precedence of loving them in the midst of the mess? And how God blesses us with people that are constantly kind of telling you, you got to let it go. Yeah. You know, you're too, you know, and, and in that friction, there's the blessing of, the check. God's yeah. Trying to God puts people in your midst, and it's you know, and someone tells you something about yourself, you're kind of like, all right, I'll let it go. Yeah. You know, but it's a blessing. It is. It is. All right. Lastly, this is what we've done. We got a few minutes left. This is what we've done every uh, every time we've looked at these commandments. We've we've talked about what it looks like in its original context. We've talked about what it looks like in the modern context. And these two aren't different. And then we we talk about how Christ fulfilled this law on our behalf. Uh, because again, you know, the, the law was not given to you as a means of earning favor before God. The law was given to you as a means to show you that you are insufficient. You, you can't do this on your own, that you need someone from up there to come down and help you do this down here. Okay, and Christ did that. So how did he perfectly fulfill this law that, he was, that was given to, uh, to us? How did Christ perfectly fulfill not coveting? I mean, did he ever covet? Of course not. Can you think of anything, any other ways that we can say Christ not only uh, passively obeyed this law, but he actively obeyed this law? Yeah. I mean, his motives were always for others. That's right. Like his whole life was lived for others, you know, like even going to the cross. And, you know, and, and that was the only time where it was like clear the struggle. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want this. I don't right. want to die like this. If it can pass but, from me. Mm-hmm. And he still did it. I keep coming, again, I keep, remember the verse I keep coming back to week in, week out? Seems like I, I talk about this verse every, Philippians 2, you know it. <laughs> Philippians 2, 5, and 8, which tells us how uh, content he was 
with the Father's will, and he, and he sets his sights beyond earthly possessions. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing. He sacrificed it all. He gave it up. He did the reverse of coveting and gave up what he had. He took on the form of the servant and humbled himself by becoming the, uh, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ was content with the will of the Father. Even though in the garden he prayed, if there's a way that this can pass from me, he still was, ended up being content or satisfied with his portion. Okay, uh, that reflects his obedience to the tenth commandment, and therefore that fueled his, his fulfillment of every other commandment too. This is, this is just not like us. We just don't operate this. We're people who continually want more. Uh, John Rockefeller uh, was once quoted as saying, "How much is enough?" Referring to his wealth and his reply. Do you remember? Do you know this? One more dollar. One more dollar, or just a little bit more. I've heard. I've seen both uh, both iterations of that. One more dollar, or just a little bit more. Just a little bit. How much is enough? just a little bit more. And it's easy to shake our heads at that, knowing that he had wealth beyond imagination, but, but we are too. We're the same way. We're the same way. And we're guilty of the same sentiment. We've been given the keys of the kingdom. And, and this, uh, this should inform our mind uh, to say, as Paul said in Philippians 4, 11 to 13, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Our reliance, our portion, our righteousness comes from Christ. Therefore, there's no reason. There's no reason to be looking for anything or anywhere, anything else anywhere else. Unlike David, who made a god of himself and turned his desire for Bathsheba into an idol, and, and then tried to cover up his sin. He tried to preserve his own righteousness. Our righteousness comes from Christ. Our kingdom comes from Christ. We have the keys of the kingdom. Our right standing comes from Christ. Our sufficiency comes from Christ. So what, what more do we need? What more do we need? So the 10th commandment shows us that the law was not merely legislation against external behavior. Don't do this or don't do that, right? Rather, the 10th commandment shows us that sin reflects motives like having a lack of contentment and, and seeking earthly things rather than heavenly things. We have to strive to find contentment in Christ because it's Christ alone who can satisfy. That's what you have to remember. That's what you have to keep in mind. It's Christ alone that can satisfy. No one else, nothing else, only Christ alone. Uh, remember that he told us he's the bread of life and whoever comes to him will not hunger and whoever believes in him will never thirst. Christ alone. Anyone else? Thoughts? Final thoughts? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. The works of Christ, the, the way he gave himself to us, mm -hmm. what was his ultimate motive? It was not his love for us. Why did he love us? Because he loved his father. His ultimate motive was for the glory of his father. Mm -hmm. Because he loved his father. We see the temptation in the mm -hmm. wilderness. We see his, his words in John 4 when his disciples, they're hungry, they want to eat, and say, don't you want to eat? He says, my food is to do the will of mm -hmm. my father. Mm -hmm. Every single desire of him was defined by his will for his father's glory. That's right. You know, and then the, what I love about the Ten Commandments here too, and it's just the way that Christ, the way Christ uh, answered it when they asked him, you know, what's the greatest commandment? You know, he said, love God. The second one's like it. You know, love people. But ultimately, even as we get to the end of these Ten Commandments, what that should ultimately tell us as we go through all these ten is what it always boils down to. And what does it always boil down to? It always boils down to commandment number one, which is what? You should, you should have no other gods before me. 
God and God alone. Every single one of those commandments ultimately point us back to the fact that you have one God, you have one desire, you have one uh, maker, and that's, that's God himself. You know, his, his, his pleasure, Christ's pleasure, was to glorify the Father. And that's what all of these commandments point us to, point us back to the fact that we have one God, and, and in him alone we, 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 uh, we put our trust. Um, and uh, just also, I have to now make sure I get this on the recording. Uh, my brother has a book called The Rule of Love, and it, it is about uh, J.V. Fesco. Uh, it's called The Rule of Love, and I use this as a tremendous resource to, uh, to do these Ten Commandments and the, the study in that. So if you're looking for deeper study or further study on that, I, I would recommend uh, that book. Um, and, uh, and that brings a wrap to our, our Ten Commandments study. Is there any other final thoughts or, or questions? As I mentioned last week, uh, we're going to do something that I did about four or five years ago, a series on the parables, and I'm going to get to do some that I didn't get to do last time. I'll do this time, and, and uh, we'll redo some of the ones that, uh, that I did do four or five years ago because you all weren't here four or five years ago, many of you. So I uh, look forward to doing that. We'll start with an introduction on that next week. Okay, anyone else? Thoughts? Final? Okay, who wants to close us in prayer? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week!